It's been nearly eight long years since today's guest has been on This Is Hell. The last time we spoke, way back in 2013, we discussed the situation in both Israel and Iran at the time, and with both nations electing new leadership over the past couple of weeks, we figured it was about time we get him back on the show. First, there was Israel electing a new prime minister and government for the first time since 2009. Naftali Bennett was able to form a coalition government that included not only the ultra-right, but Palestinians as well. However, not all of the fundamentalist ultra-right is happy with the new government, which is far more secular and focused on neoliberalism. And for those who thought the Bennett government would be a reprieve from Netanyahu's far-right-wing policies, especially toward Palestinians, think again. Bennett is actually farther to the right than Bibi. The whole thing reveals the divide between the secular and fundamentalist extreme right and ultra-right, which seemingly dominate Israeli politics today. Meanwhile, in Iran, it appears Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei tilted the scales of Iran's elections to ensure a conservative far-right fundamentalist will lead the country and protect it against growing Western influence. This change in leadership with the election of former Chief Justice of the Iranian Judiciary Ebrahim Raisi, who won the presidential election, may mean a U.S.-Iran nuclear deal can be saved, could have an impact on the fighting still taking place in Iraq, as well as affect what's happening in both Syria and Yemen. Returning to This Is Hell, historian Juan Cole is the founder and chief editor of Informed Comment, which, as the site states, sheds light on how war, climate change, and globalization are shaping our world. Drawing on the insights of expert journalists, activists, and academics, they strive to publish deep geopolitical analysis that's readable for a general audience. And unlike most foreign policy-oriented publications, their editorial line isn't dictated by beltway think tanks or corporate boards. Find Informed Comment at juancole.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash informed comment. Juan is author of many books, including the most recent works, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, and Drubayat of Omar Khayyam, a new translation from the Persian. Juan is Richard P. Mitchell, professor of history at the University of Michigan, and you can follow Juan on Twitter at Cole. That's C-O-L-E. J-R-I Cole. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess freaking Lipka. I haven't seen you in so long. What the hell have you been up to for the last few weeks? Well, I think last week I was out of town, um, which was the first time in a while I went to a wedding in North Carolina. Crazy? Yeah. Asheville? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. How did I guess? Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's the only it's place to move to to go to yeah. in North Carolina, right? Yeah, I've heard it's stunningly beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, but it's good to be back. And you were, in, they had school issues before that, right? I did. Yeah, I thought you were taking, you had finals or something. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm. <laughs> 
kind of I'm running up against the deadline right now. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but I'm sorry to take up your time. No, no, no. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's good to see you, man. Uh, and we're not going to be doing shows on the next two Mondays, so I'm not going to see you for another couple weeks. Yeah, that's what I remember. <laughs> yeah. So sucks, man. My weekend was fantastic because on Juneteenth, <laughs> the New York Times ran a story featuring results from a poll that showed people in the United States generally have no idea what Juneteenth is about, at which point the Times inaccurately describe what Juneteenth is. As the Times' Isabella Gruyan Paz writes, more than 60% of Americans know nothing at all or only a little bit about Juneteenth, the holiday celebrating the end of slavery in the United States, according to a new Gallup survey. The 37% of respondents who reported having a lot or some knowledge of the holiday Maybe an increase from previous years, pollsters and ac- academics believe, reflecting growing awareness after last summer's protests against racism and police brutality. But that means 63% said that they didn't know much or anything at all about what Juneteenth is. But it's when Paz describes what Juneteenth is that things become problematic. Paz writes, also known as Emancipation Day, Black Independence Day, or Jubilee Day, Juneteenth celebrates the day in 1865 when Gordon Granger, a a Union general, informed enslaved African Americans in Galveston, Texas, that the Civil War had ended and that they were free which is the popular understanding and the way that it's being described in all of the mainstream media. However, as Robin Washington, editor-at-large at Forward, explains the big lie is the incessantly repeated canard that Galveston's poor, ignorant black folks didn't know they were free and that U.S. Major General Gordon Granger had to read a proclamation to spell it out for them. In fact, They most certainly did know they were already free. Felix Hayward, who was enslaved in Texas, is recorded as saying in an account by historian Gregory P. Downs, we knew what was going on in the war all of the time. Hayward was in no way an anomaly, but representative of the majority of the enslaved population, Downs asserts. He further quotes Hayward saying, we all felt like heroes and nobody had made us that way but ourselves. If Galveston's blacks already knew they were free, writes Washington, obviously so too did their slaveholders, who nonetheless kept them in bondage, not by cunning or deceit or ignorance, but by the brute force and tactics of dehumanizing torture they had been using for 200 years. General Granger didn't bring liberation by words on a scroll, but by troops with fixed bayonets. None of this is to say that African Americans or all Americans shouldn't celebrate the well-intentioned holiday to black freedom just created. But if you're still clutching to any vestige of the popular myth, consider that well before General Lee's surrender, with the Confederacy clearly losing the war, slaveholders from throughout the South relocated their human property to Texas in advance of Union troops to preserve slavery for as long as they could. So no, Juneteenth is not about slaves being informed they are free. And they simply did not know. Juneteenth is about the Union sending in troops to fight those still unwilling to free their slaves. Juneteenth wasn't the outcome of a written proclamation. It was the result of bayonets, which seems to be the only way slaveholders would ever allow their slaves to go free. To repeat, on Juneteenth, 
The New York Times ran an article lamenting how few know what Juneteenth is, and then they inaccurately described what Juneteenth is. More importantly than any of that, Jess, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? Don't repeat this mantra about reading a proclamation to slaves to tell them that they're free. That is not a good mantra. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise, our winter beanie, our trucker's cap, our our steel camping mug, our tote bag, our t-shirts, our 21st century flash drive, a history of the 21st century here on This Is Hell. Whatever This Is Hell piece of merchandise you want, you will win if you have our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following Juan Cole. Again, the question from hell is, what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is something you have to do before, after, and uh, during and after drinking. It's really annoying how this is such a long hangover cure. I don't want to do stuff while, before, during, and afterwards. It just sounds like too much of a pain in the ass. Three separate cures. I know. (laughs) Um, According to an article at MSN Lifestyle, opt for a high-fiber meal loaded with healthy fats and vitamin C for your best chance at stopping alcohol from hitting the bloodstream too quickly and avoiding a hangover. Try peanut butter, nuts, avocados for healthy fat, fruits and veg for fiber, and most fruit and vegetables have a good amount of vitamin C to lessen the effect of the dreaded hangover. When drinking, use the rule of thumb that sticking to lighter, highly filtered alcohol is best. You should also try to avoid carbonated fizzy alcohol like sparkling wine, cider, or using a fizzy drink as a mixer. The bubbles are likely to speed up the rate of alcohol absorption. Stick to one drink for the night, although it may seem boring. Even more boring is the advice to alternate your alcohol drinks with pints of water. It keeps you hydrated and and can prevent a sore head tomorrow. After drinking, the best thing to do is to chug lots of water. Bland carbohydrates like toast and crackers are best to absorb any leftover alcohol in your system. Carrots, eggs, leafy greens, beetroot, and avocado will all give your poor tortured liver a treat. That makes this week's hangover cure, healthy fats, and vitamin C before drinking, While drinking, avoid carbonation and drink the same thing all night. And after drinking, it's water and bland carbohydrates. Far too complicated. That's way too complicated. I can't do all of that. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And you can help with our horrible business model here at This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or just by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we recently received an email from Rue in Glasgow who suggested we interview black decolonial theorist and independent digital media producer Apf Co. Apf has written and spoken on a variety of topics, including the uncomfortability of black veganism and its contributions to the animal advocacy movement. 
It's not a topic we've ever discussed on the show, and it's so unique. I'm very intrigued. Rue concluded, I'd be really interested to hear how Chuck's style of interviewing uh, helps to get the most out of Apps time on air. So, unaware that I have an interview style, I considered it on Patreon on Friday, and I had a realization... An epiphany, if you will, and yes, I know the word phony comes from epiphany. I do have an actual interview style, and I picked it up from working in a local TV newsroom for five years. And that style is, I approach every interview here on This Is Hell the same way I approached many of the stories I covered at the local newsroom, and that is, I am reporting from a crime scene. The only difference is back then... They were crimes like murders, and today they are the crimes of capitalism, which include climate change and causing things like pandemics and racialized police violence. Meanwhile, because we discussed MA-B last week with sociologist Caitlin Schroering, MA-B is the acronym for Brazil's Movement of People Affected by the Dams, we shared not one, not two, but three interviews from 2003 and 2004 with friends of the MST founder Eric Leanson. The MST is the landless workers movement, which along with MA-B and La Via Campesina now have a mass movement of hundreds of millions of activists who are insisting people do come before profits. They, they, they are fighting for the idea of people coming before profits. You can find out more about the Friends of the MST and keep up to date on what is happening in Brazil by visiting the Friends website at mstbrazil.org. But you can only hear me revealing how my interview style is akin to that of a reporter at a crime scene and our primer on the MST by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up, Israelis and Iranians have chosen new leadership, and while the repercussions are significant within both countries, they also have a ripple effect that goes far beyond their borders. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you... Re- i got to stop doing that. And we will tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Both Israel and Iran have had elections that change the leadership in each nation. These votes have wide-ranging effects, not only within the borders of each country, but far beyond affecting the lives of not only Palestinians, but Iraqis, Syrians, even Yemenis. Here to help us get a better understanding of what happened with both votes, returning to This Is Hell for the first time since October 2013, I can't believe it's been that long, historian Juan Cole is the founder and chief editor of Informed Comment. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Juan. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to have you back on the show. It's great to hear your voice. Juan is author of, most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, and the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a new translation from the Persian. You can follow Juan on Twitter at J-R-I Cole, and you can find Informed Comment, which is an amazing website to keep informed on what's happening within the Middle East and elsewhere by going to Informed Comment. Dot com. So you wrote just before the new government of extreme right Prime Minister Naftali Bennett was approved by the Israeli parliament that Bennett has big plans for occupied Palestine. Bennett boasts that his government, despite being based on an eight-party coalition that includes the center-left Labor and Moretz parties, will be further right-wing than that of outgoing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What do you believe is a greater threat to the safety and security of the Palestinian people? A Netanyahu government 
or a Bennett government? Well, I, I think that the Netanyahu government is the greater threat in the sense that uh, Netanyahu was usually able, not always, but usually able to put together a coalition in parliament of far right wing parties, uh, his own Likud, which is uh, uh, far right uh, and uh, somewhat secular, along with um, religious uh, uh far-right parties, uh, and all of them agreed on the project of intensively colonizing Palestinian land in the Palestinian West Bank. Uh, the, the coalition that's now in power, uh, I, I compared it to a, a bar scene in Star Wars, uh, it is, um, is very diverse. Uh, it has uh, uh, centrist or center-left parties like uh, Meretz uh, and Labor, uh, and uh, as well as uh, the centrist, uh, there is a future Yeshatid of Yair uh, Lapid, the new foreign minister. Uh, and uh, so Bennett has admitted that in order to serve as prime minister of this kind of government, uh, he's going to have to put some of his aspirations for uh, the colonization of Palestinian land uh, on hold. Of course, that's not the way he put it, but uh, he, he admitted that he won't be able to go as far as fast as he would like. You, you also write, though, that uh, Neftali, uh, Neftali Bennett hopes to bring government uh, ministries from Tel Aviv, Israel's old capital, to Jerusalem, which he hopes to make its new one in a practical and not just symbolic sense, Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem is illegal in international law and is not recognized by most of the countries in the world, but Bennett hopes to make it a fait accompli, as you write. So would Netanyahu have done anything differently when it comes to the breaking of international law and occupying East Jerusalem? Oh, no. Uh, but I, uh, there are some things that are a fair consensus across the board except maybe for Moretz uh, and uh, the, the, the small uh, center-left party. Um, so the, the, those things, it just doesn't matter who is prime minister in Israel. Uh, there's a, a consensus in the government elites that certain things should be done. And across the board, uh, I think uh, at least uh, a majority of Israelis and of Israeli politicians are committed uh, to um, making Jerusalem the undivided capital of Israel, which, as you say, is illegal. Um, the United Nations Charter forbade the acquisition of territory by warfare. Uh, the Israelis conquered uh, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, in 1967, uh, and have been militarily occupying it. But they, they took part of the West Bank and added it into their district of Jerusalem, uh, which is about a third uh, uh, Palestinian heritage people, uh, and um, including uh, the old city of Jerusalem, which is heavily Palestinian. Uh, and that annexation is, is completely illegal in international law uh, and is not recognized by virtually anyone uh, in the international community, although uh, the Trump administration uh, tilted towards recognizing it. 
You also point out that in the Oslo Accords of the 1990s, on which Israel has entirely reneged, the Palestinian West Bank was initially divided into areas A, B, and C, with A turned over to the Palestinian Authority already in the mid-1990s. It was envisaged that uh, Israel would withdraw from areas B and C by 1999, but then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, deliberately destroyed the agreement and refused to pull out. Since then, ever more thousands of Israelis have engaged in a land rush to homestead on property stolen from its Palestinian proprietors. So is there any current Israel-Palestinian accord governing anything? I mean, if international law opposes Israel, yet Israel breaks that law, which is seemingly unenforced, and Israel can destroy any attempts at peace negotiations, to what extent can Israel just do anything they want? Israel can do anything they want. Because the United States exercises its United, uh, United um, Nations Security Council v, uh, veto on behalf of Israel very consistently. The international community would sanction Israel uh, for what it's doing. Uh, it, it's illegal. It's illegal. The Geneva Conventions of 1949 forbid an occupying power from sending its population into occupied territories. Uh, I'm not making any comparison between the two. Uh, I'm simply uh, citing the, uh, the, the reasons for the Geneva uh, Convention's uh, language in this regard. But, you know, in 1939, Nazi Germans started trying to expel uh, the Poles, uh, and they were clearly going to Germanize the land that was Poland and, and just make it Eastern Germany. Uh, and, and because of what Germany did, and, and that's not the only example among the Axis powers, uh, have temporarily occupied from the enemy. At the end of, uh, of hostilities, the occupied territory has to go back uh, unaltered uh, to, the, uh, to the former belligerent when there's an armistice. Now, there's, there's, um, uh, the Israelis have never agreed, uh, except at Oslo, on which, as you say, they reneged, uh, to uh, relinquish uh, these uh, occupied territories that they conquered. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and then they've been colonized. They've been sending their people in. This is illegal. This is, this is shameful for uh, a state that arose on the ashes of, the, uh, of World War II and the Holocaust to behave in a way uh, that the framers of the post-war international order uh, tried to outlaw uh, because of the bad examples uh, set by the Axis. And as I said, there's no comparison here. Uh, I, the Germans killed six million Poles. The, the Israelis haven't, uh, haven't killed um, <clears throat> uh, anywhere near that many Palestinians. In fact, it's, it's in the thousands. Uh, so I'm not I'm not making a comparison, but I'm just saying that's the root of the law, and it's the law that Israel is is deliberately uh, breaking. And you also point out that five of the party leaders in the eight-party coalition of Bennett's have been in coalition with Netanyahu in the past, and some members of Change, that's the Bennett's organization, in Parliament have been very close to Netanyahu. So that it would be foolish to expect the Change government actually to change much in this in his way of policy. So. So why support? Why not support Netanyahu? I don't understand why they just didn't stay with Netanyahu. If it's many of the same coalition, why change for Bennett? What made Bennett attractive? 
Well, each of the eight uh, parties that is in the coalition has their own special reason for hating Benjamin Netanyahu. They all hate him. Uh, they, they viscerally hate him. They won't be in the same room with him if they could possibly avoid it, Chuck. This is a matter of hating this man. They don't want him as prime minister. Uh, in, in some instances, he stabbed them in the back too many times. One does in politics, after all. Uh, and in some instances, he stands for things they don't want. So you take uh, Avigdor Lieberman, uh, who, who leads uh, a, a party called Israel Our Home, Yisrael Betenu. Uh, he represents, um, uh, on the whole, the uh, Eastern European, the Russian and, and other uh, Ukrainian and other uh, uh, people who came to Israel in the 1990s and early zeros after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and they were brought up as communists, and they've turned against socialism now. On the whole, they're neoliberals. Uh, but they grew up eating ham sandwiches and, and not being very religious, and they really resent the hold of the small religious uh, Zionist parties uh, uh, like Shas on Israeli law uh, and, uh, and legislation. And um, so uh, Netanyahu could only be prime minister by allying with those religious parties and giving them goodies. Uh, they're like the American religious right that, you know, the, the Republicans need it uh, to win elections. So uh, Lieberman and his people just don't like Netanyahu's religious partners. And uh, they are very proud of themselves for having maneuvered Shas and, uh, and the other uh, two small religious parties right out of government. And I think they have in mind to pass some laws that are disadvantageous to the Israeli religious right while they're in power. So that's just one example of, of why, you know, Lieberman, who had, who had been often in coalition with Netanyahu, uh, turned on him. Uh, of course, Labor and, and, and Meretz, uh, as, as centrist or center-left parties, uh, don't like uh, Netanyahu's policies. Uh, but then in, in some other cases, um, Netanyahu is corrupt. Uh, he's uh, under, uh, uh, he's being tried uh, for corruption. And the kind of corruption that he's being tried for is important because uh, one of the charges against him is that he took help uh, from uh, the casino mogul, the late casino mogul Sheldon Adelson, who's an American, uh, uh, and is worth something like was worth something like forty billion dollars. And Adelson founded a newspaper, uh, uh, Israel Hayom, Israel Today. Uh, for in Hebrew for Israelis, uh, and gave it away and gives it away. It's free. You can. It's the hard copies are free. You get them on the street corner. And since Adelson is a, was a billionaire, he was able to make it a pretty good newspaper. It's got a, a good staff, a lot of good reporting. But the editorial line is a hundred hundred percent pro uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and so Netanyahu went to the real newspapers, editors, and said, see here, if you give me favorable coverage, I'll tell Sheldon to print fewer copies of Israel Today, and that will help your bottom line. So he blackmailed the newspapers 
and to covering him favorably, using Adelson's casino riches, which, you know, that, that all comes from fooling poor people. Uh, and, uh, and he's now being tried on this charge. He could go to jail over it. Uh, but it, it, you, you can only imagine how the other parties feel about this kind of, of uh, maneuvering and, and destruction of Israeli uh, democracy. Inside you know, Israel, uh, among especially Jewish Israelis, who are 80 percent, uh, there's been a you know, fair democratic tradition and, uh, uh, and, and, a, and a, a lively parliamentary uh, uh, political uh, scene. And Netanyahu has been trying to dismantle that in favor of a more authoritarian uh, kind of state in which the prime minister, uh, you know, whips the, the press into sh shape with these various techniques. Uh, and, and so Netanyahu looks a little bit like someone like uh, 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 Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey or uh, Narendra Modi in India. He's trying to move Israel to being more of an a liberal democracy. So some of the opposition to him comes from people who are disadvantaged by this development. I, I want to talk in a little bit about uh, the separation again of the divide between secularism and uh, secularists and fund fundamentalists within the Israeli government. But uh, when you were uh, responding to that question, you mentioned Sheldon Adelson. He's an American. Benjamin Netanyahu was raised in the United States. You mentioned Lieberman. This is from a faction that was of people who are from Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. To what degree is there a political dividing line within Israeli politics between uh, – I, I don't want to use these words to – like I don't want to say U.S. government influence, but American influence versus Eastern European influence? Hmm. No, no, I, I, Chuck, it's an interesting way to think about it. I have to give it some thought, but I, my initial response would be that that's not the dividing line. Okay. For instance, uh, Bennett's parents uh, are, are Americans. Uh, and in fact, they were uh, like you and me, they were on the left in the United States. They had been at Berkeley in the 60s and they were part of the free speech movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement, uh, like Kamala Harris's parents. Uh, who were there at the same time. Uh, and uh, they moved to Israel after the 67 war uh, and gradually became ex extreme is Israeli nationalists and moved to the very far right. Uh, they're a little bit like some of the counterculture Americans who ended up in QAnon. Uh, and um, uh, they have the most uh, uh, virulent uh, nationalist views on things. And Bennett you know, it was an American was an American citizen. I think think he had to give up uh, his dual citizenship. But uh, he, he's on the religious right, the kind of person that Lieberman just normally very much dislikes. Uh, and he's the only uh, religious Zionist uh, in the coalition. And he's the first religious Zionist to be uh, prime minister. So is the battle then within Israeli politics? not between right and left wing, but between secularism and fundamentalism, and it's all still right wing politics. Yes, uh, I, th I think one of the big divides in Israeli politics is between the secular right and the religious right. Uh, and uh, so uh, um, it's a little bit like the never Trumpers versus the evangelicals in the United States. 
So, and you also point out that one of the plank, uh, planks of uh, Lieberman's uh, party's platform is militant secularism. Having grown up under communism, the Russian and Eastern European Israelis have a visceral dislike of the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi form of Judaism fundamentalism, with its strict adherence to numerous minute rules, including not working or so much as turning on the light on Saturdays, the Sabbath. So why does being raised under Soviet communism lead to a visceral dislike of the ultra-Orthodox form of Judaism fundamentalism? How is that fundamentalism linked to bad memories of Soviet communism? Oh, it's not so much linked to bad memories of Soviet communism. It's just that it was it wasn't permitted by by the Soviets uh, that kind of, of Jew- Jewish practice, and uh, would get you into trouble. Uh, and so most of those Eastern European Jews uh, who came to Israel, uh, and, and some of them, by the way, are are only very vaguely Jewish. I think, you know. Uh, uh, they they weren't practicing Jews, a lot of them, uh, and maybe had a Jewish ancestor and so forth. Um, so uh, a lot of them are economic migrants to, to Israel. Uh, they didn't go because they believed in an ideology. Uh, they went because there were no jobs in, in, in Russia in the 1990s, early zeros. Uh, so they they just aren't, aren't used to having their lives shaped by this kind of Haredi Judaism, and it's just inconvenient. And if you're in, in Jerusalem, where the uh, the ultra orthodox are very powerful politically, there are just you know some things that you're constrained from doing. Um, I one time I was talking at Hebrew University, and some faculty members wanted to take me out uh, to eat in, in a nice restaurant uh, in, in in Jerusalem, and you know there was this small strip of of, of nice restaurants. There wasn't much of a nightlife in Jerusalem. For that, you would want to go to Tel Aviv. Uh, and uh, so some people feel, you know, constrained by by this and don't like it. And Lieberman said he had also achieved his party's long-term goal of making himself the Minister of Finance by supporting the Bennett government and ensuring that there would be no new taxes. He's quoted as having said that the finance ministry figures should not be treated as officials, but only a team and staff. He seems as hostile to his own ministry as Trump was to the Internal Revenue Service, which has been so starved of funds it can't afford to go after billionaire tax cheats who can tie the IRS up in court. So is the divide not only one of secularist and fundamentalist, but about class as well? Are fundamentalists an obstacle to the wealthiest not paying taxes? No, no. The, all of the right-wing parties are, um, are essentially neoliberal parties. They all uh, favor the, the, the rich. Uh, and uh, uh, in fact, have presided over the dismantling of uh, the socialist institutions uh, of Israel uh, and the rise of a powerful billionaire class, uh, which is uh, increasingly unconstrained. Uh, the, uh, the, the left, uh, Labor and Meretz, are, are shadows of their former selves. Uh, they, they, they have very small numbers of seats in the 120-member Knesset or parliament. And uh, Israeli policy has been uh, really now for, for decades uh, uh, in the hands of people who uh, favor uh, the rich. And uh, th- there are a lot of people who are very dissatisfied with this. There's a great deal of um, 
uh, near poverty in, in Israel. Uh, uh, students and others uh, can barely afford to live in places like Tel Aviv, uh, uh, which have been gentrified. And uh, so th there, there are class divisions and there's class conflict, but it's not, it's not um, fought out in parliament so much, which is heavily dominated by the right. You also point out that Haredim are only 10%, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, are only 10% of the Israeli population, but have been given many special uh, perquisites. Uh, the, they are not evenly distributed. The ultra-Orthodox are powerful in Jerusalem and in visions and uh, environs, but not in, you know, uh, Tel Aviv. And you write that the exemptions include uh, draft and the subsidies for seminary study that that get uh, members out of having to work for a living. They don't have to be in the military. They don't have to be drafted. They get paid. None of these Haredim parties is in the new government. In contrast, secular Israeli Judaism is all about having a luscious ham sandwich, as you write, when you want one. Does this mean that the ultra-Orthodox Haredim, that they may lose their benefits? And is that their priority, keeping all the benefits you get if you are a fundamentalist? Well, the answer to both questions is yes. I think if, if Lieberman has his way, some of those special uh, treatment, uh, so, uh, some of the special treatment of the Haredim or the ultra-Orthodox uh, is going to be repealed. Uh, and they are, the, the, the Haredim are desperately afraid that this will happen. In fact, they, they called uh, Bennett evil uh, for being willing to uh, serve in, in a government with people like uh, Lieberman and uh, asked him to take off his, uh, his uh, head cap, his, his kippah, uh, or uh, yarmulke, uh, because he had betrayed uh, his faith. Uh, so they basically declared him an apostate uh, for, for having served with their enemies. Uh, and uh, they're, I think they're, they're petrified uh, that, that Lieberman will engineer uh, a change so that they're treated just like all the other Israelis and, and their power uh, will be uh, taken away from them. What happens then to their influence on politics and on the popular religious discussion if they lose that funding? Well, uh, I think they would be weakened. Uh, the, you know, one of the ways they got to where they are is that originally they were a very small proportion of the population. And so in, in the early days of Israel, uh, it, it wasn't so hard for the government to give them, say, an exemption from military service. Uh, but uh, uh, as time has gone on, they have big families uh, and uh, uh, they've grown uh, in proportion of the population. And, and even someone like Netanyahu is a little bit concerned because uh, the, the populations that uh, have been growing demographically are the Palestinian Israelis, uh, the, the Israeli citizens of Palestinian heritage, and the Haredim, neither of whom uh, are Zionists, neither of whom uh, believes in uh, Jewish sovereignty in, in Israel. Uh, and uh, so you, you could end up uh, uh, down the road uh, with an Israel where uh, uh, Zionist ideology was much weakened. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so, uh, I, but, but the, the small religious parties have gotten where they are also in part because they've often been swing votes in these parliamentary coalitions. And that's one of the reasons that Lieberman is so self-satisfied in having formed a government that excludes them, uh, because they're, they're not a swing vote now. 
and uh, the, the eight-party coalition could pass laws that disadvantage uh, the religious right. The media here in the States has moved on from the story of the evictions at Sheikh Jarrah because the missiles are no longer being exchanged. How have things changed? How have things stayed the same when it comes to those facing expulsion from their homes forcibly, even room by room? Because they are Palestinian without legal rights in Israel. How have things changed other than the missiles stopping? In the medium term, perhaps thousands of Palestinians in, uh, in Palestinian East Jerusalem uh, who are in danger of uh, being expelled. And, uh, and Chuck, uh, um, uh, just as you were correcting the American audience about Juneteenth, uh, there's a Palestinian uh, um, objection uh, to the word uh, eviction uh, uh, because it's, it's, not a, it's not a matter of not paying your rent. It's not a matter of property rights as eviction usually uh, entails. Uh, Palestinians are being... Uh, thrown out of homes that they own, on property that they own. Uh, in fact, uh, 17 families recently got uh, a letter from Jerusalem municipality uh, ordering them uh, to blow up their own homes, to move out and demolish their own homes. Otherwise, the Israelis would do it for them and charge them for it. That is just stunning. So I, I kind of touch on this a little but bit. But Israel has exercised eminent domain and has claimed uh, that property on which they want to make um, uh, a, 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 a David museum. And uh, I, I, I think it will be something truly ahistorical, sort of like those biblical museums uh, that they have in, in, the, in the evangelical uh, parts of the United States. Uh, so it's a vanity project uh, for religious Zionism. And uh, as, as part of it in Silvan, they're simply uh, expropriating, uh, stealing the, the land and the, the, the homes of these uh, Palestinians, and they're going to evict them. Uh, well, as I said, the Palestinians say it's not an eviction when you're being thrown off your own property. Uh, they're going to expel them. Uh, they're going to ethnically cleanse them. You also write about a provocative so-called flag parade through East Jerusalem. And you write how during that uh, protest, the occupation forces refused to allow Red Crescent staff to transport the wounded, the wounded Palestinian protesters, and at one point fired on their vehicle, preventing its teams from moving freely. Red, Red Crescent, the Muslim Red Cross, who are trying to treat and evacuate the injured, being shot on by Israeli police. How aware do you think the public is in the states of what is actually happening on the ground in Israel and Palestine? Because I'm wondering, if we are unaware, what do we base our support for either side upon? Well, first of all, the American public couldn't be more ignorant of what's going on in the occupied uh, territories. Uh, there are very powerful people, and Adelson was one of them, who attempt to shape American discourse about these things. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, in, in the Republican uh, primary back in, in 2016, Adelson uh, kind of auditioned the Republican candidates uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, and Chris Christie came out and, and gave a, a speech in which he used the term occupied territories. And Adelson cut him off, wouldn't give him any money uh, because uh, from the 
ideology of the Israeli right and the American Jewish right, which, by the way, is a, a tiny proportion of American Jews. Um, uh, but uh, the, uh, the the right wing point of view is that uh, all of uh, uh, all of the uh, territory currently uh, held by Israel, including the occupied Palestinian territories, is actually Israel, uh, and always has been, going back to the uh, to the uh, 900s BC, uh, and uh, that um, all of these, uh, you know. Um, ex-Soviet Jews and uh, Central European Jews and Moroccan Jews and others who have come to Israel uh, since 1948 uh, are uh, descended from people who used to live there and who have a right to uh, live and settle any place in that territory. Um, It's a a kind of virulent romantic nationalism of a Central European sort, which is completely detached from any real history, uh, and, and but it is the basis for this attitude that essentially, you know, the, the, the argument is that there are no Palestinians, um, that it's all uh, it's all Israel, and uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, you know Palestinians are just Ar- generic Arabs. Why don't they go to Jordan or melt into the general Arab population? There are lots of Arab states. There's only one Jewish state. Uh, all of this kind of uh, of glib and uh, and hateful propaganda is, you know, what's held uh, in certain quarters, and they're very powerful. They're very, some of them are extremely uh, wealthy, and uh, they shape American politics. They, it, it, I, I've had newspaper men uh, and uh, TV personalities complain to me about the kind of pressure they get when they do a story on Palestine. You can watch CNN all day, every day. And I'm not picking on CNN. It's true of all of the cable news. Uh, and uh, aside from when there's a blow up, as there recently was, you would never hear the word Palestine. You would never hear the word Palestinian. Uh, and uh, there's actually a lot of news happening uh, on, the, on the occupied West Bank every day. There are clashes. There, there are Israeli squatters who've come in and settled uh, on Palestinian-owned land with Israeli government backing, or even sometimes without, uh, who are armed, who are supported by the Israeli occupation military, uh, and they make raids on the local Palestinian uh, villages. They, uh, they, they steal their, their property, they um, plant their farms, uh, they, uh, they cut down their olive trees because olive trees are a major source of Palestinian income. It's estimated that since 1967, uh, the squatters have uh, destroyed a million uh, Palestinian uh, uh, olive trees as part of it. So this is a a kind of race war that's going on every single day. And there are casualties every single day. uh, And uh, it's not it's not reported in the American press. It's simply not. And then some of the papers of record, like The New York Times, The Washington Post, will report it sometimes, but it's, it's every day, it's staccato, uh, but it's, it's ongoing. And um, um, I think most Americans don't understand the political situation. They, they think the, the Palestinians are being mean to the Israelis. They don't know that the Palestinians are occupied by the Israelis and are reacting to the occupation. 
In your writing on Iran, which people can also find at Informed Comment, that's wancole.com, you write that former Chief Justice of the Iranian Judiciary, Ebrahim Raisi, won the presidential election, as expected, with over 60% of the votes. The problem was that less than half of eligible voters bothered to come out to the ballot box. The clerical establishment had so heavily vetted presidential contenders, barring centrists and pragmatists from running, that uh, many uh, Iranians felt they were not offered much of a choice in candidates. The clerical leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, put his thumb heavily on the scale to produce a far right-wing president. So how unprecedented or how typical, for that matter, is it for an Ayatollah to so heavily influence an election? Ordinarily, Iranian presidential elections are relatively upright. Uh, in the in the election process, uh, the uh, the elections are not free and fair because uh, the tinkering is done beforehand in uh, in vetting the presidential candidates. Uh, but usually, that vetting, while it has been strict, hasn't been absolute, and so uh, relatively centrist and more pragmatic candidates have usually been allowed to run. Uh, you had Mohammed Khatami in, the ni- in 1997 uh, and, um, and Hassan Rouhani in, in 2013. Uh, and um, uh, so it's, it's unusual to rule them out. And uh, often, uh, or at least, uh, yeah, I think it could be said often uh, that the, the Iranian public is to the left of the clerical establishment. And uh, women, youth, big constituencies like that can swing an election to a reformist like Khatami or, or Rouhani. Uh, and and the, the clerical elite has usually been content for that to happen because they still have you know, ways of shutting things down. If, if, if the reformist government allows a newspaper they don't like, they can order it closed. Uh, and, and they can overrule legislation in parliament. Uh, so they, they have a margin. Uh, but uh, in some instances, 2009 was one, and, and then this year, uh, 2021, uh, the, the clerical establishment has for some reason been uh, so fragile and, and, and worried and anxious about the fate of the country that they have uh, not allowed uh, anybody but the uh, right wing to run, and um, uh, and that caused a, a, a big amount of turbulence in in 2009. You had what was called the green uh, green movement and um, a massive protests in the streets, uh, which I think shook the establishment and made them cautious. Uh, and allowed Hassan Rouhani then to run, who's the one who did the nuclear deal with the United Nations. But um, this year, uh, I think Trump has helped the Iranian right because he uh, canceled, uh, he breached uh, the treaty that the U.S. had signed with Iran, uh, which uh, put restrictions on Iran's uh, civilian nuclear uh, enrichment program uh, in return for sanction relief in return for the Iranian economy having having access to the world economy. And uh, the United States 
never really gave Iran sanctions relief. Uh, the Republican Congress wouldn't allow it. And then Trump uh, put the screws to Iran. He imposed what is essentially a financial and trade embargo on Iran, even though Iran had upheld uh, its, its part of the deal. Uh, uh, Trump tried to sink its economy, so even to the point of preventing Iran from selling petroleum on the international market, uh, things that would be e illegal under World Trade Organization rules, uh, Trump did to Iran, uh, and uh, listing the Iranian Central Bank as a terrorist organization, which means nobody can so much as wire money to Iran without risking being charged as a terrorist uh, accomplice. Uh, and that destroyed the Iranian middle class. Uh, it, it's uh, wrecked the Iranian economy. And since Rouhani had put his political capital on trusting the United States, uh, and the United States turned out to be a backstabber of gargantuan proportions, uh, the Iranian public is done out with the centrists and the pragmatists. And, uh, and, and I think um, Bali Nasser has argued that the, uh, that the clerical establishment uh, saw a moment where they could shoehorn one of their own into the presidency and not have a backlash that, as they did in 2009. So is the Ayatollah in any way becoming more un unpo unpopular? Be, uh, is, he, is he losing power? Does this reflect that he's maybe even losing a hold on power? Well, I don't think he's losing power, uh, but I think he is losing authority. You know, the... Uh, Sociologists say there's a difference between power, which is force, and authority, which is the likelihood of so that someone will voluntarily obey your order. Uh, only 48% of Iranians voted in this election. Uh, that's a historic low for the Islamic Republic. I know the United uh, uh, Americans don't like the Islamic Republic for understandable reasons, but uh, uh, the, I think they underestimate the degree to which this this form of government has had a lot of support in Iran, and presidential elections have often seen, you know, seventy percent participation, which is higher than in the United States. It shows enthusiasm for the the system and belief that the people can influence the shape of the system, uh, and uh, and that authority. Uh, has dwindled, obviously, in this election uh, since people felt that the fix was in and the, their candidates were not being allowed to run and they didn't like uh, the hardliners that were allowed to run. Uh, and, and so they boycotted uh, the election to the point where uh, less than a majority, uh, um, a plurality of, of, of Iranians even, even bothered to vote. So that's, I think that's a black eye for the, for the government. It, it's, a, it's, it's a sign of uh, loss of authority. You also mentioned another event that happened during the Trump administration, and that is the assassination of General Soleimani. Um, and you point out how Iran and Iraq have actually been in negotiations, uh, most notably the exchange of information and evidence regarding the crime of assassination of the leader of victory, General Qasem Soleimani, at the hands of the great Satan and its arms at home and abroad. What, if anything, could Iran do with information or evidence on the assassination by the U.S. of General Soleimani by the Trump administration? What could they do with that information? Would anybody even listen to them? 
Well, I, I think they can't do anything about it uh, in the international community in general, but it's a, the whole incident is a very powerful uh, propaganda tool for Iran in Shiite majority countries like uh, Iraq. Uh, and um, I think that Trump's murder of Soleimani at Baghdad International Airport uh, uh, and you know the justifications for the uh, killing were were lies. Um, uh, Suleimani, uh, according to the Iraqi authorities, had been asked to come to Baghdad to help mediate between Iran and and uh, Saudi Arabia, and and Iraq was playing that mediating role. Uh, Suleimani came on a civilian airliner. He came on a diplomatic passport. Uh, he was on a diplomatic mission, and uh, he was uh, uh, killed by by Trump, nevertheless. And then the Trump administration, you know, is, is, was was lie central, and they just lied that he'd been coming to kill Americans, or uh, um, uh, that, that that it was a, a matter of U.S. self defense and. Uh, and, and Wolf Blitzer went on CNN and said, oh, the Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of millions of people. And I thought to myself, okay, you know, I'm not saying he's a good guy, and certainly he has been involved in warfare, but millions? So where? When? How did that happen? Uh, and, uh, it, you know, the, there was just this cloud of lies in the United States about it. But it was, uh, it put the Iraqi government in a very difficult position because, Iraq is majority Shiite, and uh, the Iraqi Shiites uh, did not want this to happen. They were very dismayed. There was a violation of their sovereignty to, for Trump to kill an Iranian general on Iraqi soil. It made the Iraqis look like maybe their uh, accomplices. And uh, it resulted in a, a diminution of the U.S. military posture in Iraq to the point where I, th I think there's only a couple thousand uh, U.S. troops left in the country. And they are being rocketed and mortared uh, daily uh, by the, the, the Shiite militias in Iraq who support Iran. Uh, and I, I think it, it's probably uh, wisest that, that President Biden do in Iraq what he did in Afghanistan and just get out because there's, there's never going to be no trouble after what Trump did. So Iran, Iran benefited. I think geostrategically uh, in in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in the places that matter to Iran, from what Trump did to Soleimani. And you write that Raisi, when it comes to uh, Syria, you write that Raisi, the newly elected leader of uh, Iran, seems to think of the rebel groups in Syria as posing a threat not just to Damascus, but to Iran itself, and holds that crushing them requires social and cultural interventions as well as military ones. How much are rebel groups any threat to even Syria anymore? To what degree might Iran be exaggerating the real threat of Syrian rebel groups to Iran, let alone Syria? Well, um, uh, Raisi was saying this in 2013 when uh, the rebel groups, I think, were a genuine uh, threat to Damascus. Uh, and, you know, um, the Syrian uh, conflict uh, is... Um, a moral landmine because uh, in 2011, when uh, the revolt against the Ba'ath uh, government began, there were a lot of Syrians who, who wanted, you know, uh, a more democratic uh, and freer Syria. 
Uh, and the, the Syrian government responded to that by lining up tanks and firing at them. Uh, and peaceful demonstrations were, 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 were repressed militarily. And one of the predictable outcomes of this behavior was that people saw their friends and relatives being killed uh, by the government and they uh, were angered and they picked up a gun. So the regime, by militarizing the, uh, the revolution, um, pushed it into civil war, which the, I think the, 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 Hafez, the, the Bashar al-Assad uh, government foresaw this uh, development and, and wanted it. Uh, because if uh, the, 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 the one-party uh, socialist Arab Ba'ath regime is uh, up against uh, peaceful protesters demanding more democracy, then Syria is going to be under a lot of pressure in the world uh, to, to yield. But if it's uh, up against armed rebels, that puts a different coloration on it. And then the armed rebels couldn't get money uh, for their uh, uh, their war against the, the government from Europe. Uh, and uh, so they turned to the, the Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia and others. Uh, and the price there was, uh, you know, to support a hardline Wahhabi or Salafi kind of, uh, uh, of ideology. And that put the, 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 the Syrian regime in a really good situation because now it was a, a secular bulwark against groups with Al-Qaeda links, uh, groups like, like ISIL itself, uh, which Europe and the West hate and fear, and Iran also hates and fears, and, and ISIL did attack Tehran. Uh, and so um, by maneuvering the opposition in Syria uh, into a, a civil war and then a civil war between a, uh, an avowedly secular government and a, Muslim fund, a, Sunni, a Sunni Muslim fundamentalist movement, uh, the, the regime won propaganda points and I think uh, even helped to uh, get Iran and Russia to intervene on their side because neither Russia nor Iran could put up with uh, a pro-Al-Qaeda group taking over Damascus. Uh, and uh, so that's the lens through which Raisi was seeing this conflict in Syria as, as the, the, the possibility that Iran would lose uh, an ally like Syria, and it doesn't have a lot of allies, uh, and have it replaced by a, a virulent uh, Sunni fundamentalist regime, which would uh, be anti-Iranian and, and maybe support terrorism against Iran. So if, if one follows the failed logic of my enemy of my enemy is my friend, and ISIL, the Islamic State in the Levant, is the enemy of the Iranian government, does that make the Islamic State the United States' friend? Well, it was, I think, uh, on a pragmatic basis, uh, there was a, an alliance uh, of, uh, uh, you know, odd bedfellows in, uh, in the ISIL period when this uh, um, a terrorist uh, group had taken over uh, substantial territory in Syria and Iraq uh, and were threatening uh, both governments. Uh, the, the United States looked around for somebody to support it because the Obama administration uh, didn't want to put troops on the ground. The United States had had its fingers burned in Iraq, and that would have been unpopular. 
and so could only offer air power against ISIL. Um, but uh, you can't defeat a guerrilla movement with just air power. You need troops on the ground. And so Obama went to Turkey, and Turkey turned him down. Obama went to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia turned him down. Nobody was willing to field troops against ISIL, um, but in Iraq, the Iranians were willing to organize Shiites into militias uh, and, and, and to give support to the rebuilt Iraqi army, which had collapsed in 2014. Uh, and so in Iraq, the United States and, and Iran were uh, silent partners of one another uh, in defeating ISIL. And uh, at, at some points, uh, the U.S. Air Force gave air support to Soleimani's troops. Uh, this is something that both Iran and the United States would deny. They're ashamed of it. Uh, they can't face their own publics with the information, but it's true. Uh, and in Syria, ultimately, uh, the, uh, the Obama administration found that the the left-wing, uh, formerly communist Kurds, uh, uh, who are kind of post-communist uh, uh, socialists or cooperativists, um, following uh, the teachings of Murray Bookchin of Brooklyn, uh, they were willing to field troops against ISIL, and they were the uh, the spear uh, head that uh, that led to ISIL's defeat on the ground with U.S. air support, and that angered Turkey because uh, it has uh, fought a dirty war against uh, Kurdish uh, left-wing separatists uh, since the 1970s uh, and sees the Syrian Kurds as a dire threat to, to Turkey. Um, so uh, it, it was a mess, uh, but yes, there was uh, a period there, and this was the same period where the nuclear deal was being negotiated, where the United States and Iran were de facto allies. We have been speaking with historian Juan Cole, who is the founder and chief editor of Informed Comment. You can find out more about Informed Comment by going to juancole.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash informed comment. Juan is also author of the recent books, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace and the Clash of Empires, and the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a new translation from the Persian. You can follow Juan on Twitter at J-R-I Cole, that's C-O-L-E, J-R-I Cole. One last question for you, Juan, and as always, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write the some 2,500 U.S. troops still left in Iraq. Are Iraqi bases that have taken almost continuous mortar and rocket fire from Iran-backed Shiite militias, as you were mentioning earlier. Newly elected President Raisi and other Iranian hardliners will have lobbied Iraq hard to expel the Americans entirely. If Iraq asked the U.S. to leave, would the U.S. military leave? And if the U.S. does leave, does Iran end up winning the Iraq war? Uh, well, the first uh, uh, first answer is that the Iraqi parliament has asked the United States to leave. It did so shortly after Soleimani was uh, killed by Trump uh, in, in February uh, of 2020. Uh, and uh, the, the Trump administration response was that if the U.S. were forced out against its will, that he would sanction Iraq uh, and, and destroy its economy. Uh, so Trump at least wouldn't leave, even though he was asked. 
the and the and and the Trump administration officials went around saying that that the parliamentary decree was only advisory. This is not true. It's a lie. And all the U.S. Uh, press uh, reported the lie with a straight face. It was a parliamentary decree. It has to be obeyed. And the prime minister admit, admitted that. Uh, and so the way that the Iraqi government dealt with uh, uh, this issue was to um, uh, to negotiate a gradual drawdown. Uh, so they went from you know six thousand troops to uh, twenty five hundred, uh, and um, uh, I think over time the U.S. will have to listen to the Iraqi Parliament, uh, but not not a, on, a, on a time scale that, that suits the parliament. Uh, and there's a lot of dissatisfaction about the loss of Iraqi sovereignty uh, for the, for, in this regard. And that's why the US troops are under, uh, under mortar attack. Uh, and then um, about Iran winning the Iraq war, uh, Chuck, the, Iran won the Iraq war as soon as Bush invaded Iraq and overthrew the Iraqi government. Uh, the, the Bush administration's uh, plan was to overthrow the Saddam Hussein government and then to shoehorn in some pro-American uh, uh, soft dictator. Uh, and uh, this is what they, they had, at the time they called uh, democratization. Uh, but uh, Rand Ayatollah Sistani, the chief cleric of the Shiites in, Iran, in Iraq, um, outmaneuvered Bush. And uh, it got up big demonstrations and forced Bush to allow one person, one vote, democratic elections, which as the majority of the Shiites naturally won. And when the parties that won the election in 2005 were the pro-Iran parties, uh, which the U.S. press again collaborated with Bush in trying to cover this uh, development up. Uh, but since 2005, uh, the Iraqi government has been staffed by people who are jumping up and down enthusiastic for Iran. Uh, and, um, uh, and it hasn't been a puppet of Tehran, but, but there's been warm relations. They go and lay wreaths at the, at the tomb of Ayatollah Khomeini, and the American press doesn't cover this kind of thing because it's embarrassing. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, th I think the U.S. Uh, lost uh, Iraq almost immediately, and it, it joined the Iranian sphere of influence. Which is not to say that the U.S. was completely disadvantaged by these developments. Um, uh, Iranian American oil companies have bids uh, on I Iraqi fields that they wouldn't have had if Bush hadn't invaded, and uh, uh, there have been some uh, advantages to the U.S. geostrategically. But on the whole, and by and large, I think I Iran got the lion's share of the benefit of the U.S. war in Iraq. Juan, it is fantastic to hear your voice again. I promise it's not going to be seven years plus and the next time we have you on because the way that you summarize what's happening within Israel and within Iran makes it understandable just as the reporting and writing at your site does informed comment, which people can find at juancole.com. Thank you so much for being back on our show. And uh, I'm glad to hear that you are doing well, you know, because of the pandemic and everything. And it's really it's just great to have you back on the show. It's always a great uh, stop for me, ironically enough, uh, but uh, I love being in hell with you and uh, 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 glad to come back anytime. All right. Thank you, Juan. Take care. 
live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything. But the value of nothing, this is hell. And if you liked what you just heard from Juan Cole, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise as well as how to subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast. So do that. This is hell.com. Click on support. Just please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is what mantra are you repeating? Adam A says, Nam Mioho Renge. Nobody could possibly be so stupid as to believe the McCaskey Arlington Heights bluff. Kyo. <laughs> <laughs> um, Laddie O, come on, I want to destroy you. Benjamin C. You know, you know the thing, Bidenism. Uh, Eric T, this is hell. Andrew P says, everybody's stupid. <laughs> what mantra are you repeating? Uh, Chris L, fresh goes better with Mentos, fresh and full of life. Greg D, F off, F off, F off. <laughs> <laughs> is that just somebody who's upset with the question? I think that's the mantra. <laughs> okay. People writing things I can't say on air, though. All right. Um, Bradley R. says, I'm not a robot. <laughs> Warren L. Uh, I won't kill him. I won't kill him. I won't kill him. And last, uh, Michael D. BTFD. <laughs> so the, again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, what mantra are you repeating? You win your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our stuff. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history. On June 21st, 1621, 400 years ago Monday in the city of Prague in what is now the Czech Republic, but was then called Bohemia, thank you very much. 27 men were executed in the Old Town Square for having led the Bohemian Revolt against the Austrian House of Habsburg, which included Prague as part of its empire. The Catholic Habsburgs had crushed the Protestant Revolt of the Bohemians after two years of battle, and now they wanted revenge. Ah, Catholicism. What it lacks in Christian humanity and more than makes up for an evil vengeance. And for the Catholics, mere beheading would not be enough for those damn bohunk pro- Protestants. One of the condemned men, the doctor and philosopher Jan Yashensis, who had written a pamphlet urging the revolt, had his tongue cut out before his head was chopped off. And then his body was cut into four pieces and hoisted onto stakes, just like Jesus Christ would want, according to the allegedly Catholic Habsburgers. Another rebel leader had his tongue nailed to the gallows for an hour before the nail was pulled out and he was hanged. Still, other men had their hands cut off before they were beheaded. Their headless bodies were turned over to their families for burial, while their heads were hung from a tower overlooking the square and would remain there for... Ten freaking years. Suddenly, I'm far more happy about the fall of the House of Habsburg than I ever was. By the way, the House of Habsburg takes its name from a castle in Switzerland, which should have tipped off everybody to the fact that they were just awful. Also in Rotten History, June 23rd, 1855, 166 years ago this Wednesday, on a farm in Callaway County, Missouri, a 19-year-old enslaved African-American woman Known to history only by the name Celia, was informed by her owner, a 65-year-old farmer named Robert Newsom, that he would be visiting her cabin that night. It would, wouldn't be the first time Newsom had purchased Celia 
five years earlier when she was only 14, apparently under the pretense of making her a domestic servant. But having recently become a widower, Newsom had other things in mind for young Celia. He kept her housed separately from his other slaves and had been visiting her cabin regularly by night ever since. She had borne two children, at least one of whom was his. But Celia had become romantically involved with one of Newsom's other slaves, a man named George. And now, after five years of being abused by Newsom, she had reached her breaking point. Celia demanded that he stop coercing her sexually. Newsom ignored her plea and showed up at the cabin that very night. So Celia pounded on, on him with a big stick and it killed him. Then she burned his body in her fireplace. Later in court, Celia, being a slave, was not allowed to speak on her own behalf. The lawyer appointed to defend her, who was himself a slave owner, says Celia had killed Newsom in self-defense and argued for a ruling of justifiable homicide. But the judge ruled that being Newsom's property, Celia was not entitled to that justification. So the jury of 12 white men, four of whom were also slave owners, found Celia guilty of first-degree murder. She soon escaped from jail, but was recaptured a few years later. In December of that year, she was hanged and her children were sold. So just remember, in 1855 in the South, if you sought revenge against your owner as a slave, that was a crime. That's really rotten history. And this is freaking hell. Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com? Tomorrow, we'll be talking to historian Carol Anderson on her new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. This will be Carol's third appearance on This Is Hell. Carol was on most recently in 2018 to discuss her book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Carol was also on in 2016 when we talked to her about her book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, which was selected as one of our favorite books to be featured on the show in 2016. What about Wednesday show? We are still working on Wednesday's yeah, right. show, but we've got Thursday booked. Right. Um, uh, Thursday, we'll be talking to Brian Justion um, on his Logic Magazine report on automation, labor, and the U.S. Postal Service, the non-machinables. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin will be coming to dinner. Okay. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Juan Cole, our guest today. Thanks, Jess, for being back here, and I'll see you in three freaking weeks. Also, thanks to Alex for uh, booking today's guest and all this week's books and guests on the show. Uh, thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's hangover cure is healthy fats and vitamin C before drinking. While drinking, avoid carbonation and drink the same thing all night. And after drinking, it's water and bland carbohydrates. See, we told you, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.